when a big black touring car careened around the corner of the street car. Kramer whistled for the car to stop, but it rolled on down 23rd Street. Kramer took over his motor and raced the car back. As Kramer, a bullet in his chest, wavered fatally, crashing into the curb, the big black burning car rolled away into the night. Within a few minutes, the detachment of detectives under the leadership of Sergeant Joe Taylor, the present chief of detectives, arrived at the scene. The officers pushed their way through the silent crowd of the killed body of Officer Kramer, lying under an arc light beside his wrecked motorcycle. Officer Lanise, shaken with grief at the death of his partner, tells his story to Sergeant Taylor. You see, Sergeant, we were parked at the corner of 23rd and Main when a big black car came tearing along, nearly ran into a streetcar. Tom took out after it, and a minute later I went after some bird in the ropes doing about 50. I didn't know anything had happened until I heard the fire on his car. Midnight, while police are combing the city for a suspicious black touring car, Officer Paul Stevens touches a very frightened young girl of 13 as a detective bureau. In the presence of Chief Butler, Detective Lieutenant George K. Holm, and Sergeant Taylor, he tells her story. I'm on the market at dinner time tonight, and a car drove up and passed ahead of me. Just as I passed it, a man jumped out and grabbed me. I screamed him. He hit me. He said he'd kill me if I made any more noise, and I was scared, so, so I kept crying. He stuck the hookah at one of my mouth and tied my hands and feet with a leather strap. And he tied a cap around my head. And then he got in the car and started off. A little while later, I, I heard a whistle like he'd taste me moving. And then I heard a shouting. And then I heard a popping noise like, like a pole blowing out. You heard a popping noise? Yes, sir. And where did this happen? Oh, I, I was walking down Main Street. Well, yeah, and... Kramer was shot on 23rd. Tied in. Go on with your story, please. Well, after I got married, we drove faster and faster. And we left the smooth road and went over some dinky roads. And then he stopped. And he lifted me out of the car and laid me down on the ground. And we were out in the country in the middle of a big field. And do you think you could find this field again? Oh, yes, sir. You see, after he took me there for a long time, he said he'd made a mistake and he kidnapped the wrong girl. So he said if I promised not to tell anybody about it, he'd let me go. I told him I didn't know how to find my way home, so, so he picked me up and dragged me across the field to a road. And he gave me a dime and told me to walk straight ahead to the car line. I couldn't walk very well with the strap tied on my ankle. So I sat down and took them off, and then I ran as fast as I could until I got to the street car line. And then I told the police I'd been kidnapped, and here I am. And now I'd like to go home because my mother will be worried. Uh, yes, sir. We'll take you home in just a minute. Uh, what street car line was it? Do you remember? Oh, Fred University, I think. Did he hurt you in any way? Oh, no. He, he just hit me when I screamed. But after that, he was very kind to me. Did you get a good look at this man? No, sir. It was dark and I couldn't see him very well. Well, would you recognize his voice? I don't think so. He 
I just want to meet the thing you made me this to do. See, what did I see with Gilbert? I suppose you were. Was he drunk? I don't know. There's no kind of funny way. Oh, I forgot to tell you. When he was sitting with Jack on my arms, I did him. I bet his finger was so hard. He said, I know he did it off. Do you think you left the scar? Oh, I think I sent it a little anyway. You didn't notice the license number that his car did you? No, sir. I couldn't have seen it because he had the light off when we were in the field. Uh, you said you had a basket of groceries with you? Yes, sir. What happened to it? Oh, well, out there in the field, I guess. What was in the basket? Oh, there was a package of bacon and liver two loaves of bread and a pound of butter. Now, did you think of anything else that happened? Anything that you haven't told us? No, sir. Thank you. I know she's tired. I don't know now. You bet you may, Ruth. She's been a mighty brave girl, and we appreciate the help you've given us. Ruth is escorted home to her parents, who are on the point of notifying the police of their daughter's disappearance when the officers deliver her to them. On the next day, the officers take up Ruth's trail from the end of the University Avenue streetcar line. Follow her footprints down the road, pick up the trail of a man which leads them to tire tracks beside a mound of dirt in the middle of the field. There's a handkerchief. Well, let me see it. Yep, that's the one he used to gag over, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Any identification mark? Longer mark, number 405. Uh-huh. Well, we'll have to check that. Hmm. Wonder what's under this mound of dirt. Looks like it's just been turned over. Here I go. The groceries the kid bought. Died. Yeah, and I've got a hunky bay with a gun out there, too. You better call headquarters, Joe, and have them send out a photographer and a man who knows tire marks. Okay. Yeah, and tell them to send some more boys out to the street. I'm sure that this gun is around here somewhere. While Joe and Taylor wait for the men from headquarters, they begin to dig up the ground around the tire tracks with food, boys from a nearby ranger. But after a half hour of fast breaking work, when the photographer and the tire man arrive, they have found nothing. Carefully, the tire man examines the mark. Well, Stephen, what do you say? Rear left wheel tire is six slides. You put it with a tread slightly worn. Rear right tire is a Stanley Kidney. Well, that's something to go on at any rate. A black wearing guy with a Jupiter six fly and a Stanley Kidney on the rear wheels. And now, if we could only find that one. Late that afternoon, the officers do dig up the dirt and test the gun. And while flags of police hold Los Angeles Mondays for the owner of Mondy Mark number 405, and others are on a steam lookout for a black touring car with the incriminating tires, Chief Butler sends a telegram to the Coles Van Company. Can you inform us to whom was sold the Colt 32 caliber revolver, number 164256? John L. Butler, Chief of Police, Los Angeles. John L. Butler, Chief of Police, Los Angeles. Our 32 caliber revolver, number 164256, sold to Martin Hardware Company, San Francisco. This is Lee, San Francisco. Kindly check the room of Colt 32 caliber revolver, number 164256, and signed to the Martin Hardware Company in your city. John L. Butler, Chief of Police, Los Angeles. Our record shows Colt revolver, number 164256. Arms here, June 20th, by one Arthur Anderson, and the dean December 17th. Our officers are attempting to interview Mr. Anderson. Now, Mr. Anderson, 
We want to know about a gunman who formed last June 20th and who redeemed on the 17th of December. Well, I don't know anything about calling a gun. Where are you on the 20th of December? Right here in San Francisco. When did you last leave San Francisco? I haven't been out of town for six months. You own a gun, Mr. Anderson? Oh, well, I used to have one. What time? Cold, I think it was. 32? Maybe. I'm not sure. Where is it now? Well, I gave it to my brother. And where's your brother? Well, he's in Los Angeles the last time I heard from him. Where is Los Angeles? Well, you don't think I heard about a friend of my brother, do you? The stairs are just holding information to the police, Mr. Anderson. And the boys down in Los Angeles will find him anyway. So you might as well be smart and play on the side of the law. Oh, all right. Last I heard from Walter, he was living out in New York. Next day, Anderson's brother, Walter, is arrested by Detective Sergeant H.H. H. Klein and Sidney Hickok and brought in for questioning. At headquarters, he faces an ominous ring of officers firing questions at him. Why did the kid have a motorcycle officer? I didn't. Well, why did the kid not that little girl? I don't know nothing about it. This is your gun, isn't it? Oh. Well, the best guy you for getaway. I'm innocent. Well, it doesn't look that way to us, Anderson. This gun which you know belongs to your brother in San Francisco, which he said he lent to you is a gun that killed Officer Comer. And do you prove all that in court and we'll bring you a jury of your sitting there? Well, I, I said I'm innocent. Well, you haven't convinced us yet of that. Well, you see, this way. I lent a gun to a friend of mine. Oh, yeah? That sounds familiar. You don't expect us to believe that, do you? Well, all right. Let him alone, boys. Let him tell his story. Go on, Anderson. Well, when I asked my friend to give the gun back to me, he said he'd be difficult. He wouldn't tell me where. Who was his friend? I don't want to mention no names. Anyway, I'll see you. Okay, go on. Well, a few days later, my friend came up to my place and asked me to lend him 200 bucks. I told him I didn't have no dough, and that's when... He said he just had to tell me about the gas. Look here, boys. I can get through with this. I can't turn in a pal. Maybe you'd rather sing for the job yourself. What's the name of this friend of yours? Uh, his name's Jim Darwin. He said he was trying to kidnap a young kid whose family got killed. That night he got drunk and grabbed the wrong kid. For a miracle, that speed cop started after him. Well, he was all balled up. He couldn't stand a pinch with his kid all hiding in the back seat. So he left the cop a habit. And he saw he bumped the cop off, and he sobered up in a hurry. Yeah, imagine he did. So he drove the girl out to the country and turned to loose. There's this Jim Darwin now. I uh, know. He ain't around L.A. without the thing. Well, who else did this Darwin know in Los Angeles? Uh, he's hanging around to the game that runs the rooming house over on Grand Avenue. He said he was going to try to get the 200 bucks from her. What number on Grand Avenue? Jim's house, I think. What's her name? I don't know her name. She can't miss her. She's short and heavy. She can't miss her. Hey, Lynn. You and Bill better go over there and talk to this woman. Yes, sir, right away. Come on, Bill. A few moments later, Detective Taylor and Bill are interviewing the landlady at the Grand Avenue address. You are the proprietor here? Yeah. You know a man named Jim Darwin? Oh, he's here. Pretty good friend of yours, isn't he? I don't know how that's any real business. Well, it is our business. You see, we're police officers. What of it? Isn't it true that you and Jim Darwin are... Close, son? I don't have to answer your question. No, you don't. That is, you better. You're looking for Jim Darwin on a murder charge. What? Yeah, he murdered a police officer while he was kidnapping a young girl. Where is he? I don't know. He is here, doesn't he? Yeah, but he ain't here now. So that's what he wanted the $200 for. What did you say? He borrowed $200 from me. Said his mother was dying in Chicago and he had to get to her. When was this? Just before Christmas. You lending the money? Yeah. Then you were close to him. Uh, I loved him, I guess. What did he tell you about the murder? Nothing. I don't know nothing about it. Sure of that? Positive. Has his room been rented? No, I've been keeping it for him. 
I thought he'd be back soon. Looks like he won't now, though. I wouldn't think so. What's in his room? Right here. Next door to yours, eh? Quite convenient. Got a key to it? Yeah. Open it up. And you've got to have a safe one. Listen, if you're smart, you won't give us any trouble. You know we can get a safe one in 15 minutes, so why be tough? Just open up that room. All right. Did you take the other one on the door? Yes. Yeah. Is there handkerchiefs in this door? I guess so. I do, boy. Why? These handkerchiefs all have the laundry mark number 405. Same as the handkerchief we used to judge that kid with. Just that three years, Mr. Anderson. Well, no question about it now. Jim Darwin is the man we want. Well, you'll never get him, I can tell you. He's too smart for you coppers. <laughs> Nevertheless, the officers take out Garland's room for several days in the hope that he may attempt to return to see his nominee. The photograph of Garland is reproduced on circulars and sent to peace officers all over the United States. And on January 9th, the taciturn landing on Grand Avenue after repeated questioning admits that Garland had another address in Inglewood. Taylor and Bowie immediately drive out to the house, only to find doesn't look as though anyone is living here, Bo. No, no coffee's on the window, no furniture in the room. Let's have a look around back. Hmm. Garage right, door is locked. Grab that rock there. We'll open it for them. Okay. Okay. Uh, look. We'll attack them from the tension. See if I'm not going over. Are you looking for someone? Yeah. He lived in this house last. Yes, there was. But he moved. How long ago? Oh, sometime before Christmas. So his name was Lawrence, eh? That's what he called himself. What's in this garage? I don't know. Take a with that padlock with the rock, though. Hey, 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 now, look here. Now, you can't go breaking in the door. No, well, we're doing it. Well, I'll call the police. Now, that's what I'll oh, do. Oh, save I... it. We're the police. Uh, uh, the police? Well, uh, well, what seems to be the matter? A little murder case. Murder? Oh, oh there you are. Pull it off. All right. Oh, the door is locked. Yeah. You better look on the rear wheel. Stand those figures on the right and the six flies move it around the left. This is a getaway car, no mistake. Uh, you say Mr. Lawrence left here for Christmas? Yeah. Where'd he go? Well, he said he had a belief. His mother was sick. Did you see him drive in here on the 17th of December? Well, uh, no, I, I don't remember date. You say he left here just before Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Well, was he driving the car the last two days before he left? Uh, come to think of it, uh, he wasn't. I, I remember remarking to the missus that was strange. Mr. Lawrence was using the streetcar. I don't think he used his automobile after that morning he cleaned off the driveway. What's that? Well, uh, one morning early, I saw him driving into the garage. And he got out and scraped the muddy tracks from the driveway and then washed the driveway with a hose. Funny thing, too. It looked like rain that day. Mm, covering up, though. Yeah. Could that have been the morning of the 17th of December? Oh, well, it could have been, but of course I can't be sure. I, I never was much of a handful of numbering days. <laughs> From the black murder car, police obtained fingerprints of the wanted man, and these were his picture of broadcast across the country. But months go by, and the unwavering vigilance of the Los Angeles officers goes unrewarded. Then, nearly a year later, a citizen and taxpayer calls on Lieutenant Holm at the detective's room. Lieutenant Holm? Hmm. My name is Randolph. 
John Randolph, Mr. Randolph, you investigated that murder of a police officer last Christmas, didn't you? Yes, I was on that case. Well, I just returned to a business trip to Mexico, and something happened down there that I thought you'd be interested in. Yes, I was visiting a friend of mine, Don Romero, who has a big cattle ranch down in Sonora, near Hermosillo. Yeah, go on. Well, <clears throat> while I was there, one of the cowboys struck up an acquaintance with me. Noticed the California plate on my car and started to ask me a lot of questions about Los Angeles, and particularly about the murder of that policeman. Now, it struck me funny that he was so interested in that case, and I felt it my duty to tell you about it as soon as I got back. What is the name of this fellow? Don Romero said his name was Jim Burwin. Jim Burwin. Burwin. Darwin. Don't tell him. Yes, all right. Take him that down and talk to him, will you? All right. Did this fellow give you any reason for being so interested in the coma setting? Well, <clears throat> he said he knew a man who was a friend of the officer. They are, Joe. All right, fine, thanks. Now, Mr. Randolph, did your cowboy look anything like this? Uh, yes. He always wears that a very good picture of it. Fine. Joe, pack your bag. You're leaving for Hermosillo, Mexico, to arrest a cowboy named Jim Bourbon for the murder of Tom Kramer. Thirty-six hours later, Taylor and Bo leave the railway at Hermosillo, and hiring a rickety jitney, begin the long, bumpy trip across the rolling green range of northern Sonora. Hours later, they approach the hacienda of Don Romero. Patrol! Patrol! Mira! That's Linda Yes. Thank you, Mr. Romero. Thank you. Oh, dear, Senor. Uh, welcome to the hacienda of Don Romero. Oh, thanks. Are uh, you Don Romero? That's your service, Senor. I'm Detective Sergeant Taylor of the Los Angeles Police Department. This is Detective Sergeant Bowles. I'm honored, Senor. To the business kind, this is just the home and compass of my agenda. Thanks, Don Romero, but we'll have to dispense with all nowadays and get to the point. Oh, you're my son. Always, you know, always. Bueno, what is the, uh, as you say, point? We're looking for a cowboy that works for you. Name of Jim Berwin. Jim Berwin? Yeah, where are you? He's gone. He's gone. He's in there. He talked one day with his gentleman of yours. The new amigo, Senor Randolph. Next day, Senor Randolph leaves for Los Angeles. The day after that, if I kill Berwin, he leaves too. Very glad to understand you, Mr. Connor. Where did he go? He did not stop to say him now. You see, when he left, some things of value left with Several more months go by with no word of the murderer. And then, nearly 3,000 miles away, in the little town of Greensburg, Pennsylvania, two men meet in a saloon. I've been looking for you, Frank. Yeah, the pal. Listen, I want you to keep away from Margie. Yeah? She's my game, see? Well, I should think she'd have something to say about that. I'm telling you over the right time, she's mine. That's not what she told me. You lie. Oh, go on. See this. Why can't you be out there real quick? Hey, bartender. Give me a good Ah. Why never regain consciousness? And police, provided by witnesses with a description of the killer who is known in Greensburg as Edward Miller, throw a drug net around Aladdin County. Then, 24 hours later, a confused gentleman walks into the North Side Police Station in Pittsburgh. Yes, sir, what is it? Well, Johnson, dear, I don't know whether I'd be after seeing things or what, but I was just walking home from work, 
and I was passing under the Fort Wayne Railroad Bridge on Mudson Street, I seen a man's foot sticking out. Well, I yelled him, and the foot pulled right out of sight. What? As sure as I'm born, that's what I seen. He, he must be between the tracks, and the sea field over the street. Uh, it may be stuck or something. Now, we'll investigate it right away. The man hiding in the bridge refuses to give himself up, and quick-witted Officer McNulty plans a harmless way of ejecting him.
Lubrication experts the world over know that Sinclair's unique process of extracting useless wax and petroleum jelly leaves an absolutely pure oil. In cold weather, when most oils congeal like hard, stiff butter, Sinclair motor oils lubricate perfectly. At high speed, the wax and jelly and other oils spin out dangerously, until fast-moving parts get no lubrication at all. Expert oil buyers, every one of the 150 railroads and the leading airlines specify Sinclair motor oils because they are de-waxed and de-jellied. These orders from the country's largest oil users, as well as the demand from millions of smart motors, have made Sinclair the largest refiner of lubricants in America. Their tremendous volume enables them to give you Sinclair motor oils in sealed cans at bargain prices for such high quality. Only 25 cents a quart for Opaline and 30 cents for pure Pennsylvania. You can get Sinclair motor oils wherever Rio Grande cracked gasoline is sold. Cancellation broadcast 122. The second case now in custody. That's all. Close. Your narrator, Douglas Lindsley, bidding you good night for the Rio Grande Oil Company. Listen to Calling All Cars. Now also broadcast over the Western Network, KNX Hollywood, KSFO San Francisco, every Thursday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time and 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. <laughs>